Well, many of us will remember that shortly after 9-11, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson attributed the terrorist attacks on 9-11 to the judgment of God upon our nation for, quote, for pagans, abortionists, feminists, gays and lesbians, the ACLU, and all who have tried to secularize America. Falwell said, I point the finger in their face and say, you helped this happen. Pat Robertson agreed. They both later on tried to walk back their comments in different ways, but neither fully denied what they plainly said or fully embraced what they plainly said. So what are Christians to think of such comments? What are Christians to think of such events? What is the divine rationale behind 9-11 or Hurricane Katrina or the floods in the Midwest or the shooting in New Zealand? One wrong attempt at understanding such things is to deny God's sovereignty, to think that God is maybe caring and compassionate, but not in control. Well, the Bible plainly affirms that God is in control and not just of the good and sweet and nice things. Neither would it be right to deny that some things are evil. It wouldn't be right for us to to think that God never judges and never thinks that anything is wrong. And yet the Bible makes clear that in some matters the mind of the Lord can be known, and in other matters the mind of the Lord is hidden from our understanding. What was wrong with what Falwell and Robertson said in their first take commentary on 9-11 was not that they viewed certain things as wrong or sinful, but that they presumed to know that a particular disaster was the active judgment of God on a nation for specific sins and specific kinds of sins and specific kinds of sinners. We just don't know that. So Dr. Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary back then, commented well, on their commentary and said, there is no doubt that America has accommodated itself to so many sins and we should always fear God's judgment and expect that in due time judgment will come. But we ought to be very careful about pointing to any circumstance or any specific tragedy to say that this thing has happened because this is God's direct punishment. Well, this is an issue that is actually quite relevant for our study of the book of Exodus. Because one could easily misapply something like the ten plagues, which we find in chapters 7 to 12. We have something a little unusual in the book of Exodus. We actually know the mind of God. We actually have his divine commentary on what he's doing and why he's doing it. His purposes are explained with black and white words and letters in our Bibles. So when the next natural disaster hits our country, or when we hear about the next mass shooting, or for that matter, when the next trial comes into your life, we will most likely not know 
whether God is, let's say, disciplining us, whether he's judging them, whether those people have sinned greatly. We will know timeless theological principles like God being sovereign and God being wise and God being good and worthy of our trust, but we won't know everything that he's up to, unlike in the book of Exodus where he tells us what he's up to. And so today we'll see that in plagues 4, 5, and 6. We're taking three plagues per week since they seem to go in cycles of three. But before we get to plagues 4, 5, and 6, I want to remind you of the bigger picture of what's going on, especially since we're in a narrative and we're jumping back into it after at least seven days of being away. Maybe if you were not here last week, it's even longer. Maybe you haven't been with us at all in this series, and we want you to feel like you're jumping in somewhere in the middle of the stream safely. And so let me point out that in the ten plagues, a question is being answered and a message is being demonstrated. A question is being answered. That question is back in chapter 5, verse 2. So why don't you start by turning there, Exodus 5, verse 2. And here is when Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh the very first time to represent God, to say, let the people go. Pharaoh said, verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Really, two questions are in play here. Who is this Lord, this Yahweh, this God I've never heard of, and why obey him? And by the way, those are questions that are uh, extremely relevant. Your non-Christian friends are asking the, the same kind of questions. Who is God? Who is your God? Why should I obey him? Why should I listen to him? Well, in part, the plagues answer those questions. Who is the Lord and why obey him? God will show Pharaoh time and time again. There's also a message being demonstrated here. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. Chapter 7, verse 5, God told Moses and Aaron, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel. This is one of those thesis statements or purpose statements in the book of Exodus. There are 15 in all. The second one is chapter 8, verse 10. Turn there. This is when Moses told Pharaoh that God would indeed take away the plague of the frogs. Why? So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Well, the plagues are demonstrating this. That the Lord Yahweh is God and that there is none like our God. So now let's move on to new material with the fourth plague in chapter 8 verse 20. And let's read. And the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. 
And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with the swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there. That you may know, there's another thesis statement or purpose statement, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen, and the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh and his servants and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Well, here's the fourth plague, flies. We've seen the Nile River turn to blood, frogs come out of the Nile, and gnats rise up from the dust. Three plagues so far before, which all came up out of the terrain, we could say, out of the ground or the water. And now here comes a plague in the fourth that's in the air, further proving God's power over creation and his pervasive power over creation. And also showing us de-creation. As we said last week, it's showing de-creation. This is creation folding in on itself. This is creation not in service to humanity and order, but in opposition to those things. You've got to appreciate the problem of the flies. It wasn't merely a nuisance. We've all dealt with some fly problem that was really just a nuisance. The first church I pastored, a little Bible church in Golden, Colorado, met in a, a little old, cute, quaint, but but old chapel built in the 1930s, and this building had a historic fly problem. Flies were multiplying somewhere in the walls or in the roof, and they would come out with strength and vigor in the spring and summer, and then start to die in the late fall and early winter. And so I had to often preach without batting the fly away that was on my face, trying hard. It was there again. It was there again. And then, and then in, in the fall and winter, there it is, dying in front of my face slowly. There it is, more flies to clean up. Well, well, that was a fly nuisance, but it wasn't a plague. 
Notice verse 21, flies are on everything. They're on the people. They're on the ground. You're stepping on them. They're on your stuff. Houses are filled with swarms of flies. And it's certainly possible that these flies were of the biting kind. We call them horse flies, not just because they're big, but also because it's like they bite. It's like they have horse teeth in there. And so these swarms of flies would have made life unbearable for the Egyptians. It says, verse 24, the land was ruined by the flies, which may not mean that the land was destroyed because the flies were there, but just life is so unlivable because of them. And notice a distinction is made here in verse 22. God says, on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen. That's where the Israelites live. And no swarms of flies will be there. Verse 23, thus I'll put a division between my people and your people. Now presumably, with the first three plagues, Egyptians and Israelites both experienced them. But now God is doing something unique, something special. He's making clearer a distinction that is already there, that the Israelites are God's people and the Egyptians are not God's people. Goshen was actually in the middle of the Egyptian property, not on some outer rim where you can imagine maybe the flies didn't make it all the way there. No, this is truly miraculous. There's the miraculous sending of the flies not just some coincidental natural occurrence like, oh, that's strange. There are a lot of flies there today. No, this is God's doing. There's the miraculous swarm of flies, but there's also the timing of it in verse 23. Tomorrow this will happen, and that's when it happened. And then there's the miracle of the geographic specificity with Israel being kept from the flies while in the midst of the plague of the flies all around them. The purpose in that, it's stated for us, verse 22, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. God is not some distant God who barely sees through cosmic binoculars. He's there. He's in the midst. He, he's divided the line. He says, flies here, flies not there. He's showing his power. He's showing and symbolizing Salvation and judgment. He's distinguishing between people, my people, not my people. Protection, plague. Of course, there's another reason for this plague, as with all the plagues, that it demonstrates God's power over and even his mockery of an Egyptian God. By the way, we know that this is the case, not only from studying you know, ancient Egypt's religions. Um, one could imagine reading about Egypt's religions and saying, oh, well, I, I can see this God might fit with this plague. But we have more than that. We have a clue from Scripture itself in Numbers 33. Later on, the comment is this, on their gods, the Egyptian gods, the Lord executed judgments. Not just on Pharaoh, not just to break them free, but on their gods the Lord was, was executing judgment. So what God is in mind here? 
Well, it could be a few possibilities in the plague of the flies. But most likely, it's the Egyptian god Beelzebub, which literally means Lord of the Flies. Now, I know Jesus, I think it's Luke 11, he'll later apply that name to Satan himself. But long before that, Beelzebub was known as the Egyptian god for protection. And so you you can see how this fits together. You can see what message is being communicated. Beelzebub, the so-called protector, the lord of the flies, could not protect the Egyptians from flies. Only God, the, the true lord of the flies, the true lord over Beelzebub, and the true lord over Satan, the lord of the skies, and the lord of protection, he alone is God. The plague was so unbearable that eventually Pharaoh begins to barter for relief, starting in verse 25. He says, all right, you can make your sacrifices to your God, but only within the land. Well, God said back in Exodus 3 that they are to go out on a three days journey to make the sacrifice. What will Moses and Aaron do at this fork in the road with Pharaoh and his compromising plan? Will they, will they take it? Will they justify sacrifices in the land or better than out of the land? There's only one small piece in God's prescription that's missing, a three days journey out of the land. Well, no, they don't. And they don't even need to debate about it or wonder And this is refreshing. It tells us that Moses has come a long way since those days of questions and complaints about his mission to represent God to Pharaoh. Remember back in chapters 3 through 6, Moses was so slow to obey God. But now here, he's unflinching and undivided and undeterred in his obedience to God. Even though he pitches it back to Pharaoh in very practical terms. Verse 26, Moses says, if we perform our sacrifices in the midst of the Egyptians, this will be an abomination to them and they'll kill us. Uh, Of course, what must have been going on here is that the Israelites would have been sacrificing animals that the Egyptians thought were gods, an abomination to them. And so Moses is shrewdly suggesting that, hey, Pharaoh, that's a bad political move for you, and it's certainly not a safe move for us. It's then that Pharaoh renegotiates, verse 28. Okay, you can go and make your sacrifices out of town, but not too far. And then he says, plead for me. Plead for me. Make it stop. Ask your God who brought the flies to take them away. Like with the plague of the frogs, Pharaoh has now once again come to realize that the God of Moses and Aaron may not be the ultimate God, but he's the God who brings the plague and the only God who can take it away. And so... He asks, and so Moses does, and so God does once again. He removed the flies. Not one remained, verse 31. And yet, like a broken record, 
which isn't a broken record because the song is being played out. It's not a broken record, but, oh, this is so familiar. Verse 32, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he didn't let the people go. Take note, there is no negotiating with God. God will not be mocked. Pharaoh's hard-hearted rejection of God's word will not be the last word. In fact, God is using the hard-hearted rejection of God in Pharaoh's life for God's greater purposes to display his power and his glory in spectacular ways. With plague after plague, God showing his power over creation and over Egyptian gods and over Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh only wants relief, not repentance. Pharaoh was occasionally willing to recognize the, what we might call the godness of God or the supremacy of this God. But occasionally acknowledging God will not do. Not for Pharaoh, not for you, not for me. And when it comes to the end of the age, the recognition that will matter most is that of Jesus Christ. I think of Philippians 2. At the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You can recognize him now, you can recognize him then, before your eternal doom, but you will recognize him. I think of Acts 4 where it says that now there is salvation in no one else. No other name is given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. There's one name, one person, one thing he did, the cross and resurrection that saves. You should recognize that now. Well, back to Exodus and let's move on to the next plague in chapter 9. Starting in verse 1. Let's read. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a severe, severe plague upon your livestock that are in the fields, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. So here's the fifth plague, dead livestock. Notice that again, there's a divine declaration to Pharaoh through Moses to begin things. There's that command to release the prisoners, let my people go. There's the warning, if you refuse to obey, here's what's going to happen. And there's a window, a delay, the possibility, humanly speaking, of, of Pharaoh obeying and doing what God said. Tomorrow the Lord will do this. 
reminds us that salvation is today. While it's still today, seek him. Today, call on him. In the end, it'll be eternal judgment. For Pharaoh, tomorrow will mean the Egyptians' livestock will become diseased and dead. It's a very severe plague on all kinds of Egyptian animals, horses, donkeys, camels. You see how the plagues are getting more severe? The fifth plague is the first to introduce death. The fifth plague struck deeply at their economy and their wealth. Oxen are for farming and camels and horses and donkeys are for transportation. The cows are for milk and and food. Imagine Albuquerque shut down like this. There, there, There are no cars, there are no buses, there are no trains, there are no bicycles And there's no food, no Smiths, no Albertsons, or wherever you shop. That would be a really difficult thing. The fifth plague destroyed personal property now for the first time. The fifth plague, like all the others, struck at the Egyptians' worship. Many of the Egyptian gods were depicted as livestock in one form or another. Isis, I-S-I-S, was the queen of the gods, depicted as a woman with giant bull horns on her head. And one of her unique roles was the protection of Pharaoh, Pharaoh specifically. So again, you see, God is wiping all that out. Their economy, their property, their riches, their worship, and The source of Pharaoh's protection. It's all dying. It's all about to be dead. What was once called the finger of God in the plague of the gnats is now the heavy hand of the Lord that's falling upon these people. And here again, that hand not only only works in power to judge, but it also protects. A distinction is made here again. Verse 4 And then verse 6 and verse 7 all refer to this distinction the Lord makes between Egyptian livestock and Israelite livestock. One will be destroyed. One will be completely protected. And again, the miraculous is unmistakable and multi-layered. There's this plague upon the livestock itself. That's Again, not a coincidence. It's not just, you know, mad cow disease run amok. We've seen that before. We have a, you know, an earthly explanation for it. No, this is God's doing. This is him acting. There's that miracle, but then there's the timing of the miracle. Tomorrow this will happen. And then there's also the geographic specificity of the miracle and the protection of Israel within the plague miracle. God is showing his power to judge and protect. And God is exposing Egyptian gods and Egyptian riches for what they are, dying and dead. But Pharaoh's heart was still hard. Notice here in this plague, there's no mention of of Pharaoh calling Moses and Aaron in and pleading with them for their God to do something. One could suppose that 
There's nothing else to do now that everything's dead. There's no sending this plague away like you could with the flies or the frogs. The livestock are dead, but still, he's not even, there's no compromise, there's no negotiation, there's no talk, there's no mention of the magicians, there's certainly no repentance, no obedience, no relenting. Why? Well, because humanly speaking, he had so much to lose to let millions of Israelite slaves go free. That's his cash cow, you could say. That's that's how these... Things are being built in Egypt through their hard labor. But another reason is that because, well, God has purposes in this. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He had so much to lose. He had a a whole lot to admit and acknowledge that he hadn't formally thought about himself. But he hardened his heart. He wouldn't let the people go And God's purposes are that very thing. So God, we could say, hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so another plague. Let's read on. Verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out and sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out and sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So now the sixth plague boils. Just like the third plague here, there's no warning. There's no announcement to Pharaoh. There's no declaration or demand. There's no delay to allow Pharaoh to respond to obedience if he only would. It's just immediate judgment without warning. All the Egyptians struck with boils and sores. Now what were these boils? Uh, The commentaries are full of suggestions. Some think leprosy. Others smallpox. I'm no doctor. I have no idea what these boils and sores were, but we do get a peek into how bad and devastating these boils were when we read later on in the book of Deuteronomy when God threatens his people, if they don't obey him, with the boils like they had in Egypt. So here we we get a description. Deuteronomy 28, verse 27, the Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt. And with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. Verse 35, the Lord will strike you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils of which you cannot be healed. From the sole of your feet to the crown of your head. Well, that's apparently what broke out in Egypt among man and beast. Presumably not the livestock, but every other beast out there, they had boils. And presumably here, just like the last two, Israel was protected 
in this plague as well. It's just a, a hint in verse 11. It says this came upon all the Egyptians. So presumably God's protections at work here as well. A distinction continues to be made. But as far as the Egyptians go, this, this pervades the land. This consumes the people and even each individual body from head to toe. Notice verse 11, even the magicians could not stand because of the boils. Remember we read of them last week? With the first two plagues, they could replicate the miracle. With the third plague, they couldn't replicate it. And they said to Pharaoh, that's the finger of God. That's a power beyond what we know. Well, with the fourth and fifth plague, there's no mention of these magicians. And now in the sixth plague, the only mention of them is that they're covered in boils and they can't get up. They, they cannot stand. In fact, there's a word play, a beautiful word play. Verse 10, Moses stood before Pharaoh. Verse 11, the magicians could not stand before Moses. And don't forget the the instrument of the miracle in this plague. It's soot from the kiln. Verse 8, grab handfuls of soot from the kiln. And then in verse 10, they take the soot from the kiln. And that's the means by which this plague spreads across the land. The significance is that the kiln, of course, is how you make bricks. 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 Bricks are becoming a symbol for Israel's hard slavery and Pharaoh's cruelty. And it's as if God was taking that power and cruelty and he was throwing it up in the air and turning it back on the Egyptians with severe pain. The plague also mocked and judged not just one Egyptian god, but any Egyptian god that had to do with health or with physical protection, or with well-being, or, or, or those that could shoo away disease. And there were many of these kinds of gods, like Sekhmet, S-E-K-H-M-E-T. Sekhmet was the goddess, you could say, of the medical community. There's a whole priesthood for Sekhmet. But regardless of her specifically, the plagues of the boils was God defeating and mocking all gods of health and disease and all who put their trust in gods, so-called gods like Sekhmet. Now I wonder if this shouldn't have some application for us who live in an age of unparalleled medical discovery and medical resources, and medical treatments. Now, sure, those things like CAT scans and chemo are real and good, and we thank God for them when they work. Unlike Sekhmet, which is nothing and isn't good and, and shouldn't be ever used or pursued, but might we sometimes be in danger of trusting the good as if it was God. Might some of us almost assign divine-like properties to things medical? I just wonder. 
I wonder if some of us got a terminal diagnosis. We would just think, what are you talking about? How is that possible? We have something for this, don't we? What is it? And, and maybe there is something out there, and thank God for that. And whatever medical resources are available to us, they're not God. They're good. They're not God. Well, what conclusion can we draw from all this in these three plagues, four, five, and six? Well, I think the overall message is this, a divine distinction. A divine distinction. I think the unique emphasis in these three plagues is a divine distinction that God makes between Israelites and Egyptians. Remember verse 22 of chapter 8. He sets apart his people. Remember, he put a division or a distinction between them. Chapter 8, verse 23. Chapter 9, verse 4. But why? And why Israel? Why them? As we begin to wrap things up, and wrap things up not too quickly, so don't start packing up just yet. <laughs> but let's dig into this a little bit. Why Israel? Why them? Why were they on the protected side of things and not the plagued side of things? Well, Deuteronomy 7 comes to mind. Or later on, God says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God save them? Well, not because they were mighty, not because they were many, not because they were majestic, and neither because they were so righteous, so committed to him, so holy, so devoted and faithful. Ask yourself, what was the average Israelite like? What was he doing or she doing in the days of these plagues? The last word we had on the people the nation was back in chapter 5, verse 1, where they said to Moses, you have made us a stink. Chapter 6, verse 9, they did not listen to Moses, who was God's prophet and spoke God's words of redemption to them. We not only have those brief comments, but we also have commentary in Ezekiel 20 from God himself on what was going on behind the scenes in the days of the Exodus. So listen to this. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Verse 9, but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of Egypt. 
Why did God set his love? Why did God continue to do good? Why did God bother to protect Israel? Because they were the only ones in the land who were faithful, obedient, and had their eyes on him? No. Now maybe in the days of the plagues, maybe some Israelites were beginning to have their eyes opened. Maybe Ezekiel 20 is using a little bit of hyperbole, saying that none of them uh, gave up their idols. But when we get to Exodus later on and find the people making a golden calf while Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, we might wonder, how did it go so bad so quickly? Well, it may not have gone bad so quickly. It may have been bad all along. These are people who pretty quickly retorted back to their pagan ways. So why them? And if you say, well, it's because of Father Abraham. God gave promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what he's remembering. These are the people he's blessing, even though they're not worthy of it. And so it goes back to God choosing Abraham. So why Abraham then? Well, because he he was... He was looking for God. Well, no, not really. He was in Ur of the Chaldees, and presumably he was worshiping Chaldean idols just like everyone else there. There's no indication that he'd been putting out want ads in the Chaldean newspaper. God, if you're there, the true and one God, if you're there, please let me know. No, God just showed up. God just said, you Why, Abraham? Why you? Christian, why you? Maybe you remember your conversion experience, your story. Maybe you remember a time when the gospel was preached and you were there with a friend and he thought it was nuts and you got saved. Why? Why you? Because you were smart enough to get it? Because you were sensitive enough. You know, a a good mama's boy, in touch with your feelings, so you're just sort of naturally towards the spiritual. Oh, no. Oh, no. Consider your calling. That's what Paul invites the Corinthians to do in 1 Corinthians 1. Consider your calling. Consider your conversion, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Here's your answer. Why you? It's because of him. It's not of him who runs or of him who wills, but of God who shows mercy. Do you see what these truths do to us? Do you see what they should do to us? Do you see the effect that they should have on us? Salvation is more 
God involved than perhaps you thought, and it's less you involved than perhaps you previously thought. Perhaps your vision of God has been enlarged and expanded this morning, and you've seen that you needed him more than you ever knew. This is humbling, but this is mysterious and wonderful. God gets more glory in this kind of salvation than one where we're simply salvation partners. His salvation is not merely an invitation if you want to come to the birthday party. It's a waking up of the dead and a drawing in and a giving new eyes to see and putting new ears in our hearing and giving us faith and repentance. You see how it glorifies his grace. Isn't that why in Ephesians 1, probably the best chapter to unpack some of these truths in the New Testament, the refrain three times is to the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. Has it been a while since you have last sung this old hymn, has it been a while since you last really felt the words of Wesley's hymn? Can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Oh, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night, but thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. If you've never experienced that, which means you're not a Christian, well, the gospel offer is extended to you. If you want to believe, believe. Just know this, if you do, it wasn't because you were smart enough. It wasn't because of your sensitivity. It wasn't because you deserved it. It was all because of God's inestimable, undeserved grace. Who is the Lord and why should we obey him? Well, because there's no God like him. And because he shows himself powerful in acts of judgment and salvation like in the exodus and supremely in the cross in resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. Yes, Lord Jesus, we stand in awe afresh of our salvation. We realize again and even more how much we didn't deserve it and how much we couldn't earn it. And yet we thank you with trembling and joy and big smiles, we thank you. We want others to join us in this experience of your mercy and love.
which humbles and makes glad and makes us a singing, thankful people. So would you perhaps today, Lord, give faith and repentance to some here who haven't yet come to believe in Jesus. Perhaps today they would feel as though you have shown up in their prison cell of sin and judgment and you are busting them out. May it be so. And may we as Christians, Lord, be bold to represent you in this world because of your great salvation and your great glory and power. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.